Today's episode was brought to you by Spotify. You like music, right? And let's face it, you love podcasts. Why not have both? On Spotify, you can listen to all of that in one place, for free. And you're not even required to go premium. Spotify is an extensive library of podcasts on every topic, including the one you're listening to right now. On Spotify, you can follow your favorite podcast so you never miss an episode. Download episodes to listen to offline. Easily share what you're listening to with your friends through Spotify's integrations with social platforms like Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just search for Whispers in the Night on the Spotify app or browse podcasts in the Your Library tab and subscribe by clicking follow so you never miss an episode. Spotify, the world's leading music streaming service. And now, your go-to for podcasts. On a dark, wooded road, you wander through the night. You're familiar with your surroundings as you step so surely on, but tonight is different. The snap of a twig catches you off guard, and you begin to hear something. It's low at first, but there's something there. You know you can hear it. Though the fear within you courses through your being, screaming for you to run and find safety, Something else is there inside, compelling your curiosity and making you hesitate. Something inside wants to know. You're listening to Whispers in the Night. Welcome back to Whispers in the Night. It's the podcast that explores the things that we fear most through fact, fiction, and folklore. I'm saying, You know, it's been a very long time since we've had a bonus story for the show, but the wait is over. October is all about paranormal investigation for the podcast, and I thought I would give you a treat while you waited for the next episode to drop. Tonight, we have a special bonus story written by one of my favorite horror writers, Soren Narnia, which originally aired on Soren's Knife Point Horror podcast, and has been updated and reimagined for Whispers in the Night. As an added bonus, we have Aaron Lillis, who you've heard from productions like The No Sleep Podcast, among many others. Uh, She's joining us tonight for a special appearance in tonight's fiction. Now, before I say anything else, I absolutely cannot take the credit for producing tonight's story. Tonight, I'm just your host. This bonus episode isn't just performed by Jacob Murphy. He also mixed and edited the audio. The man is a real badass when it comes to the work that he does for the show. Even that in itself is an understatement. He really does most of the heavy lifting when it comes to literally any of the projects I send his way. In tonight's story, we meet Corin Gill, a man whose fascination with the paranormal leads him to stay in one of the world's stranger haunted houses, only to discover the true horror behind a haunting. Join us tonight in our presentation 
of Soren Narnia's presence. Enjoy. My name is Corin Gill. It was a cold October day that I received a letter from Gorham Lennard inviting me to speak to him about my request to spend the night in one of the more obscure haunted houses in the world. Lennard had purchased the Poldrich House 18 years before, and it had sat, mostly ignored and in despair, in Albany, New York, ever since. In November, I flew to Sarasota to see him. I had heard plenty of stories about Lennard. Stories of how the seven years he'd spent attempting to exercise a dock worker in Algiers had ruined him and turned him into a physical shell of what he had once been. Thirty seconds after he opened the door to his little house to let me in, it was obvious that most of the stories were true. A wave of heat, not air conditioning, flowed over me, and he immediately apologized for it. He had been suffering the sensation of always being very cold since about 2008. On this 80 degree day, he was wearing a heavy sweater, a scarf, and thin gloves over his hands. He moved very slowly. A 50 year old man who looked 70. He wasn't shy about describing his physical ailments to me. Occasional blindness in one eye, an inability to eat for days at a time, insomnia, constant bronchitis infections, arthritis, numbness in his feet that sometimes rendered him unable to walk. He had not left his home in four years. They said it was all because of the toll the exorcism had taken. That dock worker, a man of 67 when Lenard had met him, had become inexplicably possessed by the spirit of his dead twin, who had died at the age of nine. But that day we only talked about the Poldrick house. What I would find there, he said, would not be much, and I would probably leave very disappointed. There was a slight chance, however, that the trip would be a dangerous one. You see, there are two ways to bring about the possible malevolence of a ghost. The first, of course, is to attempt to touch it or act upon it in a belligerent way. The second was discovered much, much later in the timeline of the history of paranormal research, and it was discovered by accident by Gorham Lennard himself in 1987 during his explorations of the tombs of the aged soldiers in Heraclea. It was this second trigger that Lennard was worried about in the case of the Poldrick House and the reason he had been so careful over the years in allowing access to it. I would only be the fourth person to enter the place in the last two decades. To ensure my safety, Lennard had spent the months after first receiving my query letter, doing some due diligence in libraries and online, checking and double-checking the available literature about that house, which was virtually non-existent. He gave me the keys, wished me good luck, and sent me on my way only after making sure he had a cell phone number should he need to contact me. I drove to the airport at once. From Langardia, on the other end, it was a three-hour trip to the Poldrick House, 
It wasn't difficult to find. It sat on a long downslope in the corner of a small wooded lot at the edge of a lower middle class neighborhood. A mile down the road from a junkyard, and about a quarter mile away from the nearest inhabited house. Lennard spent just enough money on Upkick to make sure it had very stout locks all over, and appeared vaguely inhabited so that no one would break in, going so far as to pay to have a couple of cars parked there all the time. Cars that were occasionally switched out for one another by a hired hand who was forbidden to enter the house. There wasn't much that could be done about the lights inside. When a bulb burned out, it stayed out. And Lennard told me quite frankly that if so many of the lamps hadn't fizzled out over the past year, he might have refused my request for entry. I arrived there with nothing more than a hiker's pack containing a bedroll and some basic supplies, including new light bulbs. I entered the house at 2 p.m. on November 12th. What was left of the decor was forgettably early American, covered in dust. Just enough of it remaining to offer an uncomfortable one-night stay. There were no linens, no dishes, nothing in the cabinets, no real possessions. What remained were the things that the last owners had never taken with them when they had left in 1979. Lenard had told me that, like the owners previous to them, they had been petrified the first night, but never again saw the ghost that visited them. It is very rare that the cause of an authentic haunting is simply never discovered. But that was exactly the case with the Paldrick House. Named after the original owners, about whom no one knew anything but the last name, from a 19th century lease with an incorrect address, and for some dusty documents that hinted the purchaser was more than likely an accountant. For more than 150 years, no one had been able to unearth anything that explained the presence of the ghost. Ian Lennard himself had exhausted the usual channels of information only to find nothing about the Poldrick family, or those who had come after them, that was very useful. The closest I'd come to a breakthrough was when I'd fallen down a rabbit hole for a month pursuing the traces of a single comment from a colleague of mine, who swore that an old professor of his had read that the case had something to do with a wedding ring. Where this was read, or when, I hadn't been able to uncover. I walked through the house changing fuses and bulbs, looking briefly into all the barren rooms, including the squalid spider-infested cellar. And then I sat with a notebook and pen beside the front window to watch the daylight fade. I had been working for a few weeks on a poem that wouldn't resolve itself. At a little past six, I ate a couple of protein bars and drank a bottle of water, and I sat and waited. I could just barely see the road beyond the upslope. No cars drove down it for as long as I watched. At one point I did see a boy, perhaps a teenager, riding quickly along on a racing bike. Not much more than a dot in the distance. I texted Lennard that I was inside the house and safe. I got no response. first clue that something was going to happen was a sudden rush of almost overwhelming fatigue. So bad my eyes closed involuntarily and my chin dropped to my chest before I roused myself. 
I would describe it as an attack. I tensed up. This had happened to me twice before, and both instances were prologued to an occurrence just an hour or so afterward. I took two caffeine pills, though they were most likely irrelevant. I fought through the fatigue minute by minute, pacing the room. At 7.15, I heard the footsteps. They were coming from beyond the living room, the tiny foyer, and beyond that. Taking a few steps in the direction of the cellar, I could determine they originated behind the door that closed it off. Light footsteps on the slowly rotting wood that sat in the dark decades in and decades out. Coming up toward the door. I stood in the living room and waited. I wish I'd had more light, but I neglected to turn on more than a single lamp in the corner. Through the entrance to the room, I could see beyond where the cellar door now pushed outward. I was sweating, shaking just a little. A woman appeared there. A very thin woman of average height. She left the door ajar and moved toward the living room to meet me. More light fell on her as she entered. She was wearing the dark, featureless clothing of a 19th century housewife. Her hair was pulled back tight. She appeared to be about 40 years old. She looked at me half quizzically, half with familiarity. She stopped about 10 feet away from me and spoke the same single sentence she had uttered to two families who had lived here uneventfully after her first reported appearance, and to those who had come afterwards. Addressing me as someone named Herman, she asked if I would like something to eat or drink while I did my work. I didn't answer. Her stare was fixed, and she moved not at all. Thirty full seconds passed and she turned away from me, seeming neither vexed nor disappointed. It was as if the ghost were simply following a script to its resolution. She moved out of the living room. The only further detail I noted as she walked away was a large dust print on her right shoulder. She went past the cellar door and began to ascend the staircase that led upstairs to a pair of bedrooms. I allowed her to get halfway up and then I followed. When I got to the bottom of the staircase, treading very lightly, she was already at the top, back in darkness. I saw her turn to the right, and that was the last I saw of her. The upstairs hallway was deserted when I reached the top, and so were the bedrooms and the single bath. In that cold bathroom, I peered down through a filthy window towards the woods to the southeast. I thought I saw something moving within them just beyond the edge of the back lawn. Some unexplained shadow, but I couldn't be sure. Eventually I turned away, and so my encounter with the ghost was in every respect identical to those of the others who had seen her. No different at all. None of us had to wait more than several hours to meet her. I knew there would be little point in me staying inside the house, but I stayed anyway. Writing and pacing, drinking bottled water and texting Lenard, who answered only once with the letters 
Okay. Until I had absolutely had to lay down on a couch nearby. I kept the lights on, and sleep came quickly. When I awoke, I was alone and rain was falling outside. It was 8am, daylight covering me where I lay, and time to return to my own home. It all felt like an anti-climax for months as I went about my other work, but I never fully left the case of the Poltrick House behind. It felt more mysterious than my colleagues did. I had underlined the words wedding ring inside the notebook I kept about the house. The ghost had been wearing one, I had noticed, but further research came to the usual dead end. I exchanged two more letters with Leonard. In the last one he wrote to me, he mentioned I should consider myself somewhat lucky. What he was referring to was the second way to very suddenly bring out the malevolence inside a ghost, if it indeed held any within it. This was to stumble upon the secret as to why the ghost remained so tortured. They all carried either an immense amount of guilt, or a torturous yearning to fulfill a destiny that had been thwarted, and in some cases there was something deeply sinister about what they knew and which had never been found out. The most important advance in the field of paranormal research over the past 30 years had been Gorham Lennard's discovery. At the moment a spirit secret was discovered, or rediscovered, by anyone at all. The anger, the rage, and the agony were unleashed, posing great danger to the spirit's next visitor. In the case of the Poltrick House, it seemed more and more likely that if the strange woman who offered something to eat or drink while Herman went about his work did possess the capacity to become dangerous, her trigger would never be found. Perhaps there was simply none at all. She was just a mournful lost soul unable to rest because of the regular human sorrows that engulf so many of us. The course of my work took me far away from Albany over the next two years, and there was simply no more time to investigate the case between teaching assignments and archaeological digs throughout Eastern Europe. One evening I attended a lecture at the University of Warsaw, the topic being the physical toll paranormal research like mine could take. A slide came up showing a man hunched over in a wheelchair, looking at the camera, blankly, unsmiling. It took me more than a minute to realize that it was Graham Lennard I was looking at. The photo had been taken a few months prior to the lecture. Since I had seen him, he had gone into steeper decline. About ten months after that lecture, I received news that Graham Lennard had died. He had gone in a most unusual, cryptic way. After years of literally not leaving his house, he had one day limped into town, wearing his usual cold-weather apparel, and found his way to a cheap chain restaurant, where he sat down and ordered a pot of coffee. At some point, he had gone into the men's room. A manager was alerted a half hour later that someone was in there with the door locked and was not responding. Finally, the manager broke in, he found Lenard on his knees in front of the sink, his head immersed in six inches of water, having somehow drowned in it. On the very same day, and in the very same hour, an old man named Ralph DeFrank, living across the Atlantic in Algiers, had tied a large rock to his leg and pushed it off a pier. That was the man Lenard had helped to successfully exercise. Or maybe, it hadn't been such a success after all.
In June, I was in Manhattan following up on rumors that two drivers working at the bottom of the Hudson River, having descended there as part of a salvage mission after a small jet crashed into the water, killing twelve, had reported seeing something truly bizarre in those black, icy depths. They swore that by the lights, dropped down to the two hundred feet, they had seen a pair of hunched, human-like figures carrying two of the victims' bodies into the darkness, walking on the muddy river floor, and somehow disappearing when pursued. But I was called away from that by an email from an attorney telling me I inherited something from Gorham Lennard. A phone call revealed that he had actually willed the Poldrick house to me. There was no formal explanation aside from a note that the attorney read to me. In it, Lennard wished me well with the house and hoped that I would either use it for my research or sell it to fund other projects. It was that simple. The attorney offered to overnight the necessary papers for me to sign, and I gave him the address of my hotel. Because I was only a few hours away from the house, I drove out there the very next night, June 15th, to take a look at what was now the grandest possession I had ever owned. I was still intrigued by it but more so perhaps by the thought of what fieldwork at sale might finance than the presence that dwelt within. Though it was past sunset when I got to the house, I could see it was much like I'd left it. Two lamps were still lit in the window seals, perhaps from my first visit, as I had no idea if anyone else had come here in the interim. One compact car was parked in the drive, and I recognized it as one of the dummy cars Lennard had arranged for. The area around the house was unchanged, still struggling, and the package the attorney had sent me were the carefully wrapped keys to the house, five of them in all. It took me several minutes of standing in the dark to figure out, by trial and error, which one opened the front door. I had nearly given up, figuring Lennard may have had the locks changed when the deadbolt turned over, and then I was back in the Poltrick house. Once inside, I did not feel the desire to explore. I had seen everything there was to see. I suppose I did not want to encounter the ghost again, but since I had seen her once, the chances of that reoccurring were essentially nil. I would not wait all night or longer for her to come up the cellar stairs to ask me if I, a stand-in for someone named Herman, who seemed to have been her accountant husband in the late part of the 19th century, wanted something to eat or drink while I did my work. I didn't feel I'd learned much from the experience. Looking briefly into the living room, I saw that the small writing table where I had had some time ago worked on a poem was still set up beside the window. I set the package from Lenard's attorney on it and sat down to go through it, signing whatever needed to be signed. Even now, a year after that night sitting here in my house in Atlanta, my hands shaking a little as I write, and my skin now so sensitive I sometimes can't go out on windy days. I am astounded by the awfulness of my timing in visiting the house. Had I only gone through those papers back at my hotel, I would have discovered how the diligence, access to obscure legal documents, and blind luck that Lenard's attorney had possessed had uncovered something terrible. Something that suddenly made me terribly vulnerable. You see, in trying to appraise the house's value, he'd located the original lease, not a scan of it. 
and having no preconceptions of the handwritten name shown on it, he typed the name he saw there into a genealogical database as Poldrice, Poldricht, perceiving the last letter differently than anyone had before. This had led him to uncover the fact that the only Albany family named Poldricht actually had no relation to the house, and every dead end became suddenly clear. It had been briefly foreclosed upon after the sudden death of Herman Poldris, a death long since forgotten, but which had shocked the police when they came upon the scene on June 2nd, 1887. Gorham Lennard's attorney now knew something that no one else living did. At exactly 8 p.m., as I finished reading a photocopy of a 125-year-old county court document that sent shivers down my spine, and had my first thoughts of leaving the house now, right now, I heard a noise from the cellar. It was a sharp thump, as if something blunt had struck a block of wood. That was followed by a piercing shriek of pain, coming from a woman's throat. As I began to rise from my chair, knocking the papers onto the floor, the shriek was repeated again and again at quick intervals, and each time became less of a howl of physical agony than of rage. And then came the sound of heavy footsteps on the cellar stairs. Not slow this time, but running. Running fast. I was too frightened to move even an inch further. I would not be able to get out of the living room and into the foyer in time to avoid what was coming for me. <laughs> the door to the cellar flew open and the ghost appeared. She strode into the room where I stood overcome with terror. In her right hand, Emily Poldress held her left one which she had chopped off with a butcher knife. Blood poured from the unwrapped stump. She thrust the hand toward me, her face covered in sweat, her eyes wild. She screamed. If your whore in Boston wants jewelry, give her this too! The last thing I remember before waking up two days later on the back lawn, hungry and dazed, was the way she shook her gray, bloody dismembered hand so as to make me see the wedding ring on it, now wrapped around a lifeless finger. The madness of the mentally ill Emily Poldress, the fury that had been building for years and boiled forth one night in 1887, resulted in her own death by blood loss, but not before she had savagely bludgeoned her unfaithful husband with the poker kept beside the living room fireplace. I did not suffer her physical wrath, no. That would have been impossible. But I have suffered nonetheless. Overpowered and infected by that unleashed malevolence. Colleagues tell me I will get better, that the nightmares will stop, my heart will strengthen, the hemophilia will be cured, and I'll stop shaking and feeling such pain. I must be patient, they say, and wait, 
and stay busy. Until that unlikely time I spend my days reading, trying to stay warm, and living off the money for the insurance payment that came after I arranged for the Poldress house to be burned to the ground. Whether Emily Poldress will now rest in peace, or roam the lonely woods to the east of the property forever, appearing to unlucky wanderers in the dead of night, remains to be seen. But I vow to you, not by me. Let's take a break from fiction to talk about something real. Your true paranormal story. Have you ever had something strange happen to you that you can't completely explain? A true paranormal story? Have you experienced strange lights in the night sky? Perhaps you've spent a night in a dusty old inn out in the countryside only to make contact with a previous guest who apparently never left. Is there something odd lingering in the woods behind your home? Maybe the phenomena you're experiencing is a little more strange. Does any of this sound familiar? Maybe you have a true paranormal story of your own. Connect with us. We'd love to hear it. True Paranormal Story is a segment that we're adding to the podcast on our off weeks to feature listener stories of the strange and unexplained. Email Nikki at trueparanormalstory at gmail.com with yours today, and it could be shared on the podcast. True Paranormal Story. We look forward to hearing from you. <laughs>